0: You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
1: Welcome, everybody. Good afternoon, good morning or good evening, wherever you're listening in to us today, in person and online. Uh, my name is Professor Des O'Neill. I'm co-chair, Professor of Geriatric Medicine, co-chair with Professor Mary Cosgrave of the Department of German here in Trinity College, Dublin, of our Medical and Health Humanities Initiative. Uh, you're welcome to the longest running series of medical and health humanities seminars in uh, an Irish university. And we're particularly pleased today to be able to introduce Jakob Summerer, who is going to talk to us on eating disorder autopathography as a part of uh, this series. Um, again, Jakob is currently undertaking PhD research on metaphor and metonymy use. In German language eating disorder memoirs. Uh, he also teaches classes on German film, language and literature at Mannuth University and TCD. And he acts as a representative for postgraduate researchers in the School of Language with Literature and Cultural Studies. And he's also the postgrad representative with the very active German Studies Association of Ireland. So, Jakob, you're very welcome and really looking forward to the talk.
0: Thank you so much for that introduction, Desmond. Um, Hello and welcome everyone. I'm here today to talk about the therapeutic use of metaphors in life writing about illness, um, also known as autopathography. Specifically, I want to explore how metaphors may improve the user's mental health, how they might um, support recovery from and treatment of illness, and how they're used to make sense of a life with illness and disability. Um, As a form of symbolic healing practice, metaphors and their effects are often touched upon in the medical slash health humanities. Um, But I believe that there's much more room for methodological improvement, and also more room for interdisciplinary dialogue in this area. Um, To demonstrate what this might look like, I want to first sketch a quick quick overview of how health-related metaphors have been read in the medical humanities to date, and then discuss some of the lessons that I have learned in my own PhD research um, on metaphor use in people with eating disorders. But um, before we dive into this, I just want to be upfront with you that I'm quite shamelessly using this seminar as a safe space to brainstorm some rather half-baked ideas that I have for the final chapter of my thesis. So um, I'll be grateful for any feedback that you have on my ideas. Um, Don't hold back, please. Um, In my day-to-day life, I'm a linguist and narratologist, so I don't really have any formal training in psychotherapy or psychology, um, which means I'm kind of way outside of my comfort zone here. In thinking about the psychology of language use, so please feel free um, to let me know if you spot any inconsistencies or even downright nonsense. <laughs> to start with, I want to take a quick look back at how metaphors have been analyzed and interpreted in the medical humanities in the past, and I also want to think about where we are at, at in, in this moment and where we might go from here. Um, Metaphor theory in the medical slash health humanities arguably begins with um, Susan Sontag's seminal essay, Illnesses Metaphor, which she published in 1978, and which she then followed up with um, a companion essay called AIDS and Its Metaphors in 1989. In these texts, Sontag uses or discusses, on the one hand, the ethical implications and the stigmatizing effects of using different illnesses in metaphors, um, specifically those metaphors that target negatively valued phenomena. As an example, she quotes one of her own journalistic responses to the Vietnam War, where she referred to white people as the cancer of human history. Um, Using illness metaphorically in this way, she argues, potentially contributes to the stigmatization and marginalization of those affected. Um, Apart from these comments on the stigmatizing effects of metaphor, she also makes the somewhat baffling, but also quite typically polemical claim that the most truthful way of regarding illness and the healthiest way of being ill is one most purified of, most resistant to metaphoric thinking. Um, this claim quickly attracted widespread criticism for quite obvious reasons. Um, it's not only because it's basically impossible to think and talk without metaphor, at least not for um, neurotypical people, but also because so many medical professionals are convinced of the therapeutic potential of metaphor use as part of treatment interventions and in clinical communication. In her second essay, um, AIDS and its Metaphors, Sontag then comes to agree with some of her critics and amends her earlier statement saying, of course, one cannot think without metaphors, but some metaphors we might well abstain from or try to retire. Um, unfortunately, both of these essays, or for me, unfortunately, both of these essays lack any grounding in literary or linguistic metaphor theory which I think somewhat somewhat subtracts from the force of Sunset's argument, and it also results in a loss of nuance that we saw in that first quote there. Um, Nonetheless, I think these texts were crucial and necessary first steps because they alerted us to the fact that metaphor use may have very real, sometimes negative consequences for those affected by illness and disability, um, which is why we definitely should use metaphor very carefully and purposefully in how we think and talk about these experiences. And yes, we definitely should retire some of those conventional metaphors that use illness or disability as terms of abuse, so as not to deepen the stigmatization of what is actually affected. Despite the many critical responses to Zontag's essays, her approach to health-related metaphor continued and continues to inform many subsequent discussions of metaphor in the medical humanities. Unfortunately, like Sontag's, the study often remained quite superficial in their linguistic analysis of metaphor, and almost exclusively focused on the ethical aspects of metaphor views. Um, for instance, when we um, kind of read through the many insightful contributions to the study of to the study of illness narrative, um, we can see that in such books, uh, in such classics as um, Arthur Frank's The Wounded Storyteller or Tom Cowles' Recovering Bodies, or even the more recent contributions like Stella Bulaki's Illness Many Narratives. um, Metaphors are on on the one hand, everywhere. They're often picked up on and quoted by the authors within the context of their discussion of illness representation. But at the same time, metaphors are also nowhere and that they're almost never clearly defined. They're rarely read closely um, within their context as communicative stylistic devices. And they're rarely analyzed in regard to their functions and potential effects on users and receivers. Um, this lack of nuance and rigor in discussions of health-related metaphor is fortunately addressed in other recent critical responses in the medical humanities field. For instance, in her 2011 paper, After Zontag Reclaiming Metaphor, disability scholar Martha Holmes highlights the need to move on from a purely Sontagian stance on illness metaphor. Um, Interestingly, she not only argues this in regard to scholarship, but also in regard to dealing with personal illness um, in in one's private life. In fact, she's convinced that as a consequence of taking sometimes polemical claim or polemical ban on metaphor use and illness experience and treatment too seriously, she herself forced to, uh, or felt forced to refrain from metaphor use when she was describing the early symptoms of her ovarian cancer to her doctor. The resulting lack of metaphorical vividness, she thinks, then impeded and delayed her eventual diagnosis, as her communicative acts failed to capture the first-person experience of her pain in a way that made it possible for the doctor to identify the first signs of her cancer. Um, I'm always fascinated to see how critical theory enters into the private sphere in this way. Um, More recent publications in the Medical Humanities have responded to such calls for a new approach to metaphor Um, And many researchers have now begun looking towards linguistic and literary theories of metaphor in the search for a new analytical tool set and vocabulary. Um, In my experience, the success of these um, sort of new attempts at metaphor analysis has been quite varied. Um, Alan Bleakley, for example, who is um, a central figure in the UK medical humanities, um, tries to make use of cognitive linguistic theories of conceptual metaphor. In his study of figurative communication in the medical field. Um, I say tries because he unfortunately um, at times fails to fully grasp some of the central tenets of conceptual metaphor theory, and then also proceeds to incorrectly apply the analytical methods of this um, approach in his own discussion. But to his credit, um, he does draw on linguistics with much more bigger than many other scholars in this field, and he's informed by, by several neurological and psycholinguistic studies on metaphoric cognition which in my book is definitely a step in the right direction. Um, The medical humanities scholar that I think has been the most successful and and convincing so far in her approach to a post-Sontagian reading of illness metaphor is literary scholar Anita Wohlmann. Um, In her 2022 book, Metaphor and Illness Writing, she focuses specifically on a group of metaphors that Sontag, or Susan Sontag herself, was also very interested in. Um, And those are metaphors that frame illness experience as a physical fight or battle. For her part, Sontag was mostly worried about the harmful effects that such militaristic metaphors might have on those that are directly affected, on those that are conscripted into metaphorical armies and all-out wars against their own sick bodies. Ullmann, on the other hand, adds much more nuance to this discussion by pointing out the many positive and empowering effects that some writers of illness narratives have found in warfare metaphors. She explores, for instance, the extended Amazon warrior metaphor that breast cancer survivor and feminist intellectual Audre Lorde used so skillfully in her cancer journals. Um, and much more successfully, in my opinion, than her predecessors, uh, pre- Woman draws on linguistic and literary theories of metaphor to analyze the interplay of metaphor and narrative discourse. So she's much more focused on metaphor in its um, natural context. One important issue that Wohlmann points out in her book, and that also motivates me in my own research, is that academic thought about the effects of metaphor use in illness experience has been too black and white so far. Um, Either scholars focus way too narrowly on the negative effects of metaphors, like Susan Sontag did, or they exclusively highlight the therapeutic potential um, and the empowering benefits of metaphor, which is what many contemporary researchers do. These beliefs, or these sort of black black and white beliefs, are rarely empirically substantiated and far too generalizing and simplistic, Hullman argues, um, as metaphor is always context-bound. A metaphor will never have the exact same meaning and effect across the various instances of use in a discourse community, and it will never have the same effect or meaning uh, even across the different instances of use over the course of a person's life. Whether a health-related metaphor is therapeutically helpful or harmful to the user, must be decided on a case-by-case basis via close reading of a metaphor in its context. Um, And I fully agree with Wollmann's point here, um, for which we have a lot of evidence from psycholinguistic experiments. But I would also like to add that there are, in fact, some people out there that might have some pointers for anyone interested in what makes a health-related metaphor um, at least likely to be helpful helpful or harmful. Um, And those are the people I think we should be learning from besides linguists as part of a post approach to illness metaphor. Um, because since the 80s and 90s, we have access to various publications by psychotherapists and psychologists and psychiatrists that focus specifically on metaphor use as an integral part of, the, of healing in the therapy space. Um, Richard Kopp here, uh, for instance, who I have on my slide here, um, explores how therapists may best respond to their clients' metaphors and use them as conceptual scaffolding for the therapeutic encounter. And in the 2010 Oxford Guide to Metaphors and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Richard Stott and his colleagues demonstrate the importance of using metaphors consciously and strategically, um, both in formulating the client's problem and in offering them new ways of looking at their problem, new ways of metaphoric thinking, feeling, and acting. Um, And most recently, Dennis Tay, in his book, uh, Metaphor in Psychotherapy, Reduce the insights and experiences of metaphor-conscious psychotherapists, and he reads those through the lens of cognitive and psycholinguistic theories of metaphors, which is very effective in my view. Um, I just gave two papers on why linguistic metaphor theory is a promising first port of call. For anyone interested in researching and analyzing metaphor use, I'm not going to go into too much detail on that today. Um, for anyone interested, I can really recommend the introductions to linguistic metaphor studies that I have on the right-hand side of my slide here. Um, among many other useful tools we can find here are um, reliable procedures for identifying metaphors and natural discourse, or um, techniques for analysis and interpretation, and also methods for annotating and categorizing large amounts of metaphor data, which is really, really useful, um, as I know from my personal experience working with my purpose. Um, and this kind of... Sort of interdisciplinary cross fertilization, I believe, is a promising way forward for metaphor research in the medical humanities after Sontag. By combining the knowledge from these two disciplines, we'll be able to analyze health related metaphors with much more precision and nuance, and we'll be able to make um, stronger inferences about the potential effects and functions of metaphor use in context. um, Inferences that are backed up by the experience and the empirical evidence of the psychotherapist. The psycholinguist and the cognitive linguist. Um, so much for where we are at in terms of uh, metaphor studies in the medical humanities. My apologies for the somewhat lengthy review, but I thought it would be useful for us to have a rough idea of where we are at before we look at some examples. In my own PhD research, I focus on metaphor use in memoirs written by people with eating disorders such as bulimia, anorexia, or binge eating disorder, for example. Um, I'm mostly focusing on bulimia and anorexia at the moment because my focus was just too large. Um, And as you can glean from the book covers I have on my slide here, I explore both German and English language autobiographies. um, And like the diagnostic labels that fall under the eating disorder umbrella, this genre of autobiography is relatively young. Um, There's a small number of texts that were published as early as the 1970s and 80s, but the genre itself only fully took off in the 90s and has been going strong ever since with new, many new publications every year. Um, partially, this noticeable rise in the number of texts mirrors the sharp rise in diagnosed eating disorder cases during the 90s and early 2000s. Um, but I, was, I, I think it was also very likely influenced by the wide popularity and success of American author Maria Hornbacher's 1998 memoir, Wasted, which I have at the center of my slide here and which to date is the most widely received text of the genre and the only eating disorder memoir that has been translated into several languages. Um, So without further ado, what can we learn from this corpus about the therapeutic potential of metaphor use? Um, First of all, and perhaps most importantly, uh, one of the key functions that I have seen metaphors serve in, in these eating disorder memoirs is as building blocks of the explanatory models created by ill people. Um, All writers of eating disorder memoirs feel the need to come up with an answer to the why-me question. They all try to find an explanation for why they were the ones that developed this mental illness. Um, In his classic book, The Illness Narrative, psychotherapist Arthur Kleinman argues for the therapeutic benefits of developing such an explanatory model in coping with illness and disability. He um, argues that constructing some sort of cause and effect chain provides the ill person with a sense of coherence um, and this might endow their life with meaning and sometimes even purpose, which can be therapeutically beneficial. Um, And this is especially important in cases of illness where the root cause um, of the illness or of the illness onset is difficult to determine and inaccessible to sensory perception. It makes sense, then, that the why me question has been proven to be especially crucial in mental health narratives, where exactly this onset of the illness is often hard to determine. Um, And since metaphors are particularly suited to conceptualizing the complex and the abstract in terms of the more delineated and the concrete, it also comes as no surprise that the explanatory models of ill people tend to be built on the foundation of metaphor. Um, From what I have seen so far in eating disorder memoirs, (laughs) Explanatory metaphors are often related to communication. Um, The author's eating disorder is conceptualized as a communicative act. For instance, some writers frame their eating disorder as a message, um, specifically a message sent by a metaphorical agent that is located somewhere deep inside their minds. The sender of this message is rarely specified, but whoever they are, their purpose is to notify the person affected by the eating disorder of some deeper underlying psychological problem Um, a trauma, or even some sort of personal weakness. Um, And then this warning takes the form of an eating disorder, um, metaphorically speaking. Framed in this way, the eating disorder then becomes an act of care by an anonymous benefactor. Um, It becomes an invitation to look inwards and heal the underlying issue. Ultimately, then, illness is pedagogical. The illness message has the purpose of teaching the affected person about themselves, Um, and of providing them with essential self-knowledge and the opportunity of personal growth. Another metaphor theme um, of explanatory metaphors that I've seen very often now is related to plants. Um, Here, eating disorders are frequently likened to deeply rooted and hardy weeds. Um, This whole plant metaphor for illness, or especially for um, mental illness, has quite a long tradition. and I think the, the writers on this tradition here, but they kind of extend these metaphors um, and t- talk about um, you know, their full-blown eating disorders coming from some kind of deeply rooted plant, from some kind of um, root um, that is deep, buried deep within their psyche. Um, and then when this plant starts to fully bloom and grow, they are offered with the opportunity to become a gardener or a biologist to kind of dig within their own psyche. Uh, and look at the substrate and the fertilizers within there that the eating disorder plant was able to thrive in. Um, The successful recovery process is then framed as a thorough uprooting of the illness weed, while unsuccessful attempts at recovery and relapse are likened to someone merely cutting off the above ground part of the plant while leaving the roots intact and allowing the plant to regrow. In both of those explanatory metaphor themes, um, so in both the communication and the plant metaphors, Eating disorders are framed as uncomfortable but ultimately positive learning experiences that help those affected explore their psyche and personality, and that show the person what they have to work on in order to become more resilient and to realize their full potential. Um, Thereby, their illness is endowed with meaning and even purpose. Um, Another group that I have seen very often now, um, perhaps unsurprisingly so, is related to irregular forms of movement. Um, Conventionally, in most languages, life is understood as self-propelled movement along some sort of path. So it makes sense that life-disrupting experiences such as eating disorders come to be framed as irregular movements, movement that is not self-propelled, movement that is somehow inhibited or other directed even. For example, writers with eating disorders often understand themselves as having lost their way, having slipped and fallen, Um, going in circles, being on trains, or going in the wrong direction, or even having been let down the wrong path by some malevolent guide. Um, Such metaphors are effective, I think, in that they make intuitive sense due to their rootedness and embodied simulations of everyday physical movement. Um, And they also allow users to integrate the assumed causes and the contributing factors of their illness into an irregular movement scenario often in the forms of metaphorical roadblocks, diversions, potholes, slippery slopes, traps, um, and so on and so forth. Um, Such explanatory metaphors fall down and transform the complex and the abstract, um, which makes it easier to think and talk about illness experience. And there are also mnemonic devices that will contribute to a more stable sense of autobiographical coherence, because they are often easier to recall than non-metaphorical explanations. We can observe the mnemonic powers of metaphor in eating disorder memoirs where writers almost exclusively remember and report on the vivid metaphors used by the therapists when they're describing their treatment experience. Um, a second um, quite closely related uh, therapeutic use of metaphors is uh, the framing and reframing of specific aspects of the illness experience. Um, reconceptualizing a problem, trying on a different alter, um, perspective, and finding new ways of thinking, feeling, and acting is often therapeutically helpful, as therapists like Richard Stott and his colleagues argue in the metaphors in Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Um, in their view, metaphors are crucial tools in counteracting dysfunctional ideas and values that are harmful to a person, and that are themselves often metaphoric. Particularly in a mental illness like an eating disorder, where, which tends to be comorbid with mood disorders, we can see how harmful metaphor belief, metaphor-based beliefs and the emotions that they generate may be to the human psyche. Um, and we can also see how helpful it can be to those affected to engage with those toxic metaphors and to find therapeutic alternatives and reframings. For instance, many writers with eating disorders report on the harmful ways in which their younger selves conceptualize food and eating. Most typically, negatively valued nutrients and energy units, such as sugar, fat, or calories, come to metonymically standing for food, so that a plate of food might turn into a plate of calories and fat to the eating disorder mind. Um, food is also frequently metaphorically likened to death, poison, contamination, or dirt, which means that the act of eating becomes an act of self-pollution, um, of becoming unclean and perhaps even ill. While such harmful behaviors as self-starvation and purging are construed as positively connotated ways of self-cleaning, um, ways of re-establishing hygiene and order. Clearly, these kinds of harmful metaphors are underscored by highly conventional metaphorical associations between cleanliness and moral purity, as well as between self-starvation and spiritual hygiene. Such connections are deeply rooted in Western religious discourse, and they have been shown to be key elements of pro-anorexia, and pro, um, bulimia ideologies which we can find in online communities um, and a lot of the writers in my corpus have at some point in their lives been part of these kinds of communities. Um, a person eating is also frequently conceptualized as an animal eating in anorexic or bulimic thought, with human food metaphorically being likened to animal feed, which then contributes to a general aversion to eating as a subhuman and undignified act. According to the logic of this metaphor theme, a person going through dietary therapy as part of their inpatient treatment and often comes to metaphorically see themselves as a caged animal, um, specifically a caged animal being force-fed, which decreases treatment compliance and is likely to negatively affect treatment outcome. Strategically and consciously engaging with such harmful metaphors is key to eating disorder therapy. And we can see this reflected in the life writing as well. Often under the influence of their therapists, writers exert significant effort to come up with alternative metaphorical framings, which counteract the negative connotations of food, eating, and treatment. And this also enables writers to let go of and even inverse um, any positive connotations that self-starvation or purging behaviors might have carried before. Um, For example, um, some writers begin conceptualizing food as necessary fuel by reframing themselves as wood-burning stoves or um, cars, for example, that would simply burn out or shut down without fuel intake. Um, Some writers also liken eating to breathing and food to air to highlight the existential necessity of eating. Such metaphorical reframings can also positively change a person's perception of their treatment. For instance, reconceptualizing dietary interventions in eating disorder treatment has the potential to boost a person's um, belief in the necessity of the treatment measure. And this may improve their treatment compliance and their chances of recovery. Um, There's lots and lots of other treatment-related metaphors that I've seen in my corpus, um, and they're often used to either positively reframe the patient-doctor relationship, the psychotherapeutic process, or even the pharmaceutical interventions for mood-related issues. The um, Body also often becomes the target of metaphorical reframing eating disorder members. Um, Again, that is probably unsurprising. Uh, Most people with eating disorders metaphorically see their bodies as an entity that is separate to their self, um, an entity that is often personified, an antagonistic agent, some kind of vicious animal, um, or even a burdensome object that is um, positioned as an enemy or an obstacle to the person. In recovery, such harmful dualistic memoirs or uh, sorry, such harmful dualistic metaphors are often questioned and um, resisted by authors we are trying to come to terms with being a body instead of merely having a body. Some writers do this simply by um, sort of questioning um, these dualistic mem- uh, metaphors and then refraining from using them. Um, but other writers also have their bodies metonymically stand in for the person as a whole. This kind of reframing might then support their efforts at re embodiment in somatic therapy. um, And it might also help them in re establishing a connection with their bodies and improving their body perception, which is often impaired in people with eating disorders. Um, Another key function of metaphor use in eating disorder memoirs and also in eating disorder therapy is the therapeutic externalization of illness. Um, alienating and distancing the person from their illness might be a therapeutic intervention that is quite particular to eating disorders. Um, people with eating disorders initially don't see their illness as a problem that needs to be solved, typically, which is why they tend to lack the intrinsic motivation to recover and often feel ambivalent about seeking treatment and going through treatment. In fact, they tend to develop an egocentric understanding of their illness, which means that they come to see their disorder as integral to their selfhood as a positively valued personal identity. So treatment aimed at getting rid of the eating disorder is then perceived as an attack on the self, on the innermost true self in many cases, um, which significantly lowers treatment compliance and chances of recovery. That is why most eating disorder therapists, like Richard Maisel and his colleagues, for example, who spoke on therapeutic externalization I have on my slide here, um, most of them encourage their clients to materialize and concretize their illness through the use of metaphor um, to help them or support them in developing an ego dystonic thinking about their disorder that frames it as something other and hostile to the self. To practice ego dystonic thinking, most authors in my corpus use personification metaphors, um, animal metaphors, or object metaphors for their disorder. These metaphors position the user at a distance from and often in opposition to their illness, which may be therapeutically beneficial in several ways. Um, First of all, it can counteract self-blame, shame, and guilt in the person with an eating disorder for engaging in certain socially unacceptable behaviors like lying to their family about their eating and purging behaviors, for example. It is then not the person that lied to their loved ones, but their disorder as a metaphorical agent that did so. And it also helps those friends and family members not to blame the person affected for their emotional states and behaviors. Instead, um, the family and the person affected by the eating disorder can team up against the eating disorder as a common enemy and direct their emotional response towards this metaphorical entity, which I've seen time and again in these eating disorder memoirs. Um, This sort of sharing of a private metaphoric language to talk about disorder um, is likely to create intimacy and can strengthen the bond between everyone involved in the person's recovery, which may uh, positively affect this process of recovery. And then externalizing metaphors um, can also be usefully employed to frame eating disorders as something impermanent, um, as either a mortal organism or a movable object that the person can let go of. This also highlights the possibility, necessity, and purpose of recovery and treatment, which increases compliance, optimistic attitude, and intrinsic motivation in the person affected. For example, one of the authors in my corpus conceptualizes his anorexia as a parasitic organism and himself as the host organism. this not only an him to make sense of this illness via an experiential model, it also highlights the innocence of the person as host. Um, it highlights the harmful influence of the illness as parasite, and it also stresses the need for recovery, for getting rid of that foreign organism. Um, other writers frame their eating disorder as an abusive relationship. Um, and I, this is actually the framing that I see most often, where The eating disorder is conceptualized as a violent, gaslighting, or manipulative partner. And then the recovery is conceptualized as a necessary and life-saving breakup, which serves a similar purpose to the parasite metaphor. And perhaps unsurprisingly, many writers, especially men, um, find it empowering to conceptualize the recovery as an all-out war or physical fight against their eating disorder, who is um, positioned and imagined as an infiltrating or invading enemy. Some writers actually um, abstain from any metaphor that might breathe life or personhood into their illness, um, and they um, focus on objectifying metaphors instead. Um, on several occasions, I've seen writers employ object metaphors that externalize their illness as some form of rescuing flotation device, um, such as a life vest, a life ring, or a life boat. Illness is thus explained as an object that helped the person in a time of need but that can and should be let go of as part of the recovery process when the person learns to swim for themselves or returns to land. It is likely to be therapeutically helpful that most of these object, animal, or person-based scenarios position the metaphor user um, initially as powerless against the onset of their illness, but then as agent responsible for their own recovery. This may on the one hand counteract self-blame and guilt, but it may also highlight the necessity of active participation in treatment. Um, and finding a concrete way of communicating their abstract illness experience might also have indirect benefits for the users. Uh, um, as such, externalizing metaphors based on embodied experience make it easier for others to empathize with the ill person. And this in turn might then positively affect their social bonding in recovery. Um, as a final therapeutic use of metaphor um, that I wanted to discuss before concluding this paper is destigmatization. People with illness and disability are generally at risk of being marginalized and discriminated against based on the stigma that attaches themselves to their minds and bodies. Um, And this can be seen very clearly in eating disorder memoirs where authors exert considerable effort to counteract misconceptions and prejudice uh, prejudice they have encountered or internalized following their diagnosis. Managing what sociologist Urban Goffman termed a spoiled identity and finding ways to resist both internalized and externally imposed stigma often has authors um, strategically resort to metaphors. There are two main um, metaphorical stigma busters um, that I have seen used so far. First one is quite a common one. We also see this in mental health awareness campaigns a lot, um, where eating disorders or mental illness more generally is likened to physical illness and injuries, such as a broken bone, for instance. As a destigmatizing move, this metaphor group is meant to counteract any personal blame directed at the person affected by mental illness and also to counteract any suspicions of a moral failing on their part. As Michel Foucault demonstrated in his History of Madness, the enduring folk belief that mental illness is the result of some sort of character flaw, uh, the result of an ethical mistake or vice, has haunted those diagnosed with mental disorder for centuries. And time and time again, I'm baffled to find out that um, when I'm talking to friends and family, for example, even today, this belief is alive and kicking. While the metaphorical comparison with quote-unquote real illness or injury might help in warding off some of the stigma, this move is also somewhat risky, as some disability theorists have pointed out. To be sure, it may be therapeutically beneficial to the individual using such metaphors, but on a wider societal level, this comparison between mental health and physical health may also indirectly strengthen biologically essentialist beliefs about mental illness being a purely bi- biological phenomenon. This in turn could then divert attention from mental illness as a multidimensional issue with cultural, social, and economic factors. whose treatment and prevention um, is a lot more complex than that of a broken bone. Another somewhat surprising uh, stigma busting met- metaphor in my corpus um, is aimed at eating disorder specific stigmas, such as the enduring folk belief that eating disorders are mere youth or fashion trends, um, that they're harmless outgrowths of vanity and attention seeking. To resist such beliefs, authors surprisingly often turn towards substance addiction in their metaphorical analogies. Um, comparing their illness to this also stigmatized, yet much more widely known and accepted group of mental disorders is often aimed at highlighting the seriousness of the disorder and normalizing it. And it is also used to emphasize how bro- how problematic recovery from it is. To this, uh, to this end, some authors metaphorically recruit a once-an-alcoholic, always-an-alcoholic identity to conceptualize their own recovery, which could be both beneficial and harmful. On the one hand, the um, These addiction-based metaphors highlight the need to stay vigilant, um, which I think might support people in continuously seeking treatment and avoiding relapse. But on the other hand, it could also strengthen their belief in the impossibility of recovery, which might negatively affect treatment compliance and outcome. Used as stigma-reducing devices, however, these metaphors are deemed helpful by many writers, who report positive effects on how they view themselves and also on how they are viewed by others, which ultimately benefited their recovery. And that brings me to my conclusion. Um, I certainly couldn't really go into all the therapeutic functions that I have seen metaphors served in eating disorder memoirs today, but I hope I was able to give some idea of the nuance and clarity we stand to gain when we combine linguistic methodologies and psychotherapeutic insights in thinking about the potential effects of metaphor use. As we have seen today, health-related metaphors are neither universally helpful or harmful. Their effects on users and receivers depends on when, where, and how they are used in constructing the realities of illness and disability. On the one hand, um, metaphors can contribute to dysfunctional cognition. They can contribute to self-harming behavior and negative affect by framing healthy function in negative terms, as we have seen in the food and eating-related metaphors used by the authors in my corpus. But on the other hand, metaphors may also be used um, therapeutically to counteract harmful associations to externalize and explain illness experience, or to engage with the various stigmas that come attached to medical illness and to diagnoses. Going forward, I would be, I would personally be very interested to see how metaphors are used um, across different genres and types of health-related discourse, which I think will significantly deepen our understanding of the multifunctionality of metaphor as a cognitive and communicative tool. Um, but that is music of the future, as we say in Germany. Um, thank you so much for
1: listening. Well, thanks very much, Jakob, and uh, welcome to everybody who's joined us in person and online. Um, Professor Des O'Neill's uh, chairing, uh, chairing, co-chairing Medical Humanities here with Professor Mary Cosgrave, and ably uh, supported by our programme coordinator. I'd like to thank again uh, Shelby Zimmerman.